Hello, I'm Junius Williams. I'm a historian. I'm an attorney. I'm an educator. I'm a blues man, and I am an organizer. Everything that has happened to me in my life, except the impact of my childhood with my parents, everything that has happened to me, good or bad or indifferent, is because I am an organizer. And so that's why we're here today. I was born in a segregated hospital. My brother was born in the house, and that had something to do with the politics. So is everything in your life political? Yes. Everything is political. Starting when? Well, you mean starting from the awareness point or starting from reality? Well, when I first articulated it is when, uh, let's see, I probably got in the movement. But even so, it was kind of like on the outside edge of mm-hmm. reality. I was in my uh, late teens. So it took you till your late teens to figure out everything's political. Mm-hmm. Because everything's political, but I wasn't political. You see, I had been taught that all you have to do is to work hard. People will accept you if you go north. People will accept you for what you are. You don't have to worry about race. You don't have to worry about people holding you back. And I realized that that just wasn't so. Same time, the civil rights movement was just burgeoning. This was the beginning of the 60s. So when I got to college and I realized, hey, some folks up here are just as bad as the folks down south. They just don't wear sheets. It means that there was uh, exclusion. There was discrimination. There were uh, people who got drunk and then the word nigger was flowing freely as much as the beer was in my fraternity house. It meant that I was expected to have low expectations and he can't do but so much. All of that was there. And that was the same thing down south. Down south, the difference was, well, we're not even going to let you get a chance. In the north, it's, well, we're going to let him in here, but uh, we don't expect much. Were you expecting it to feel that way? Oh, no. No, because my parents told me you're going to have to work twice as hard but you're going to get the same results as white people. Well, because the civil rights movement came along and I had at just about that same time in 1961, I was headed out of town, out of the South, going to the North. And I went to the North because my mother had a plan and her plan was to get me out of harm's way by sending me to a quote unquote good school. And everything would be all right after that. But she did. And my father told me, you're going to have to work twice as hard as a white boy as your own age. But uh, the result is going to be that you will be recognized based on your skills and not on your skin color. So that's what I went away with that great expectation. But as fate would have it, that didn't happen. And the civil rights movement came along and people said, well, hey, we're tired of this. I still identified freedom, quote unquote, as uh, freedom from overt racist oppression. It was only when I got to Amherst and actually as I had gone through Amherst that I realized 
there's another layer to this. <laughs> you know, there's something else going on here that my mother and father did not tell me about that my friends down south don't have any idea about because they never been in the north where there's only a few people that you will be able to trust who are white. And there's not enough of us around to have a community to celebrate the culture. And so I had to do something about it, too. And that's why I came to Newark and didn't go back in the South when I think about it. Because Tom Hayden said to me in my senior year, the civil rights part of the movement is over. We got the Civil Rights Act and we got the Voting Rights Act. But this class thing, which I had been experiencing all along, the whole aspect of uh, class and racism that had not been resolved. Is that when you became an organizer? Uh, That's when I became an organizer. When I went to Newark, I became an organizer. I was working with poor and working class people, and uh, I realized I could do that. I could talk to people. I could listen to people. I could fashion uh, remedies with them, not for them, and it was good. I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed facing the power structure as we found it in Newark, which was run by white people who had all the facade of, uh, had a great facade of being equal. But underneath it, I knew there were grave deficiencies that were meant to keep Black people in our place. So that's why we're here today. This is Everything's Political. I'm also your host on this podcast, we're going to continue the journey that we started in part one in a lot of ways because I had to convince you that all things are political. In season one, we talked about the things that were obviously political, like race and racism. I talked to all four of my children to ask them the question, is racism here to stay? And they gave a brilliant response, I think, all four of them. And then we talked about things that were not so obvious, not so obviously political, such as your choice of music. Why is it that Black people no longer like the blues when it's our creation? The only people that you now see, or most of the people that you see performing the blues, are white. So what's up with that? Politics. So today, we're going to start a new series focusing on what it means to be an organizer and what it means to be organized. That's why we are here, and that's why I have been joined by a new co-host, a young woman who I have become very fond of, who is also the producer of this program, and her name is Francesca Larson. She is a partner in Mosaic Strategies, a uh, Bloomfield, New Jersey-based group, which is, uh, as I said, they're producing this podcast for me. And uh, she was kind of convinced to become the co-host relatively, I can't say it was easy. (laughs) I can't say it was easy. I won't even accept the name co-host. I can't even get her to accept the name co-host because of what it means to her. But uh, A, she's a natural, and B, she has something to say. And she has something to say because I was talking to her about uh, what it means to be an organizer. And she said, well, I'm an organizer. 
And that's why I want to ask her to tell you what she meant. Oh, see, you're, it, I thought I was going to get to ask all the questions. You're just going to roll out with me as the first organizer? All right. Absolutely. <laughs> no free rides here. You earn hey, your I, way on this show, as you have. Oh, absolutely. I, You know, I'm still waiting for that privilege of the free ride. Maybe my my grandchildren will get it one day. I think I was born as an organizer. I was raised as an organizer. And for me, being an organizer simply means living a life where you intentionally make choices to stand up for others while risking yourself. And sometimes that means something big. Sometimes that means being at the front of a movement, of an organization, but a lot of times that means putting some intention behind making a change. And right now for me, there's one that comes to mind really fast as a mom with a kid in a classroom, that it is my job as a mom to consistently be an organizer, to show up for not just my kid, but to show up for all of the kids that are in her class, that are in her school, to make sure that they're getting the best education possible. And that sometimes means understanding the politics, understanding who's pushing what buttons, what the relationships are, and navigating through that. doesn't mean I'm showing up to school with signs every day, (laughs) but it does mean that I'm making intentional choices, asking intentional questions, and building relationships and bringing folks together So when the moment is needed, the parents are organized and ready to say something. And something I've learned from you, Mr. Williams, and I go back between when you're genius to me versus when you're Mr. Williams, because Mr. Williams is the guy that we're here to follow, that we're here to learn from, and that I feel privileged to be just able to have a voice in your space. But As I think about being an organizer, I think about it as an intention, as something that I have to show up for. And, you know, you never know when you're going to be called for that moment. And you got to be ready. I don't know. That's not as sexy as the organizer that you might have been or that you still are. So based upon my nomenclature about the uh, art and science of political organizing. The first thing I want to know is who are we organizing and what is this for? So from what I've heard you say, you're an organizer because you're a parent and you're potentially organizing parents to stick up for children in school. Is that right? I think that is one aspect of my life where I'm an organizer. Yes. All right. Well, give me some more. I think that I'm an organizer when it comes to how I built a business, that I have built an organization that is ready to make a change and continues to make an impact. And does that mean it is a financial organization? Yes, but it was built on the principles that I learned from organizers that I've learned from the values that folks like yourself have fought for. And I see that as being an organizer because every day I have to commit to bringing folks together and advocating for something. 
and also expecting a change. So whether that's an intentionality behind making sure that my entire team has health insurance and that we can pay for health insurance, there's organizing that goes along with that. I've got to know who are the companies that I can bring in that I can afford. I need to be able to advocate for better access to resources. I need to know that this health insurance is going to cover not just the men on my team, but also the women on my team when they have children. And then I need to take one other step because I have this power as a small business owner and insist that our health insurance also covers mental health support. And that's part of my responsibility as an organizer in business. Does it mean I am on the front lines of policy? No, but it does mean that I still have a group of people who count on me to be an organizer for them. So let me play devil's advocate here for a minute, because I'm with you. Sure. I hear what you're saying. So how does that help the greater good? Modeling. Say more. What you did in Nork was modeled in other cities. The way that, let's take the minimum wage as an example, that folks have organized to increase and that my team has been part of that organizing. Were we on the front lines of it? Absolutely not. Are we the leaders behind it? Absolutely not. But are we, have we been part of it? Yes. But you take minimum wage, each separate organization that's operating around the country is modeling how to do that work for another group. It is absurd to think that any one of us has created the perfect model for organizing or that we've created it by ourselves. And what I've seen is that we have to learn from history. It's why I love working with you because I get a cheat sheet every day to history. The things that you've done, the way that you talk about the medical school fight, those are things that have been modeled all over the country since then. So what she's talking about is uh, our fight in Newark to keep the medical school now run by Rutgers taking 150 acres of land, how we got it reduced to 60 acres of land and how we got 60 acres of vacant land to build houses. And that's true because everybody wasn't doing that. But what I hear you say on a more basic level, on a grander level, if I can coin that word, is that there are roles to play and everybody plays a different role and you can still be an organizer. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two is that there are different kinds of organizations at different points and at different levels in the political spectrum, and it all should come together for the good. So that might be lesson number two that we're uh, spreading all over EPP2 land, everything's political podcast land today. Isn't that part of what brought you here? to make sure that the lessons that you learned are carried through. Why did you want to talk about organizing right now? Why did it feel like this was the right moment? Maybe why not season three? Why not season seven to talk about organizing? Why is 2021 the time to talk about organizing? Because I'm concerned and you're absolutely right. I have a personal legacy, which I think is intact. Unless somebody comes along and, finds out some skeletons in my closet that even I don't know about, I'm okay. But there's a whole mood in this country today which is confronted by some very evil people 
who are not at all dumb. And they are twisting us and moving us closer to out-and-out fascism. And so I see people coming along and doing demonstrations, but I don't know that they're organized enough to face what is going on. And that's what I'm concerned about. And this might be lesson number three, and I'm going to start putting numbers on it, but this is, because <laughs> I'm going to lose track. Uh, but this is a lesson that I want us to learn as we go through this series of nine episodes. There is a difference between mobilization and organization. I saw after the George Floyd killing, I saw a lot of mobilization but I don't see as much organization that I think is necessary to fight the evil that I just articulated. Mobilizing, and it's easy to mobilize people today. One of the things we're going to talk about in one of our series especially is uh, how easy we can use the media, the modern media today, to get people to come out and be involved. We can put something on Facebook. We can put something on some of the other stations, and that's probably the wrong word to use. I'm hawking back. <laughs> but uh, one of the other kinds of platforms that's available, and you can get people to show up. But what happens after that? Who are these people? I see people coming out to meetings nowadays, and there's nobody there with a yellow pad taking names, addresses. We used to take addresses, but there's nobody there to take names. In this case, some kind of communications method, whether it's telephone or emails or whatever it is. And so you have a situation where you have people just going back into their lives and you don't know whether you're going to contact them or not. Now, if you're organized, and I also spell this out to a great deal in my book. My book is called Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics and the Era of Black Power author, Junius Williams. Thank you. Not a plug. (laughs) You're going to need that book as we go through this series. One of the things I talk about is uh, how organization brings you together so that you understand the strengths and weaknesses of the people that you're working with, much less the people that you're opposing. But if you've got an 80% player, you can always depend on that person 80% of the time given the fact that they're parents, given the fact they got to make a living, given this, given that. If you got an 80% player, you hug that person. You stay close to them. On the other hand, if you've just got a 20% player, well, then you know you're not going to be able to count on that person 80% of the time. Those are the people, for example, when I had my organization called NAPA, the Newark Area Planning Association, I knew, for example, I could only expect them to come out when there was a demonstration. But I knew that, and I knew I could depend on them, and they were good brothers and sisters to have. But that other 80% of the time, I had to get some other people to work with me, to run their office, to manage the communication, to be on the lookout for what's going on, to come to those boring meetings and, and to be included in some of those smoke-filled rooms. Those are the people that you hold on to. But you can't get that from just mobilizing. You have to have some kind of way to touch people and to stay in touch with them. So that's a very important lesson, difference between mobilizing and organizing. 
What's the difference between mobilizing and organizing? That's a good question. People mobilize in reaction or in response to an immediate threat. That's the impulse that people have who have been politicized. For example, when George Floyd was killed and we saw it on camera for however long that took, people started moving. They went to demonstrations. They went to rallies. They did all kinds of good things. But the question is, are they organized when they come home? To be organized is to have a continuing presence, to have a continuing group of people that you can rely on, to be able to mobilize, yes, but to also strategize, plan, take care of one another, support one another, move on more than one issue at the same time. That's when you know you're organized. If you have that ability to do all kinds of things, sometimes all at once. See, in an organization, everybody can't do the same thing. Everybody won't do the same thing because they have different skill sets. There were some people in my organization who could not knock on doors because they could not stand to see what was going to be behind those doors when the doors were open. But they could run an office. They could play with kids. They could feed people. They could bring back information. It's all kinds of things people can do in an organization. But if you're mobilized, all you are expected to do is that one thing, to be at XYZ place at XYZ time and to presumably raise hell. Have you seen anybody or any, any groups who you think are organizing well right now? Yes, I do know that there are some out there who have been able to withstand the test of time. And that is the ultimate test, withstanding the test of time. If you started with George Floyd, are you still in the struggle? And who's in the struggle with you? That's what we need to talk about. How do you get that kind of continuity and to be able to weigh and determine who's going to be with you? Another thing you need to be worried about is um, who's going to be with you in spirit and even look like that 80% person, but they're working for somebody else. As we used to say, working for the man. I had an organization, again, called Napa. And in retrospect, probably one-third of the people who were involved were spies. Oh, we're going to have to touch back on that later in the season. <laughs> We all like a little spy, a spy thriller. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's when you know you're good because that's when folks come in and offer you things. And I had an offer to furnish my office and stuff Ooh. like that. And Oh, man. And then I had people, when I went away, I went out of town, I came back. Somebody had tried to organize a revolt. <laughs> uh. <laughs> were you a little bit proud of them? Were you a little bit proud? You're like, oh, I see you using those tools I taught you. Yeah, I was proud of the people who stuck with me. And then I made mistakes with respect to maintaining that organization myself. When I went into City Hall, my organization just really died. If I had that choice again, would I have done what I did to stay with uh, Ken Gibson, who was the first Black mayor of Newark, or would I have tried to stay in the community to further develop? I probably would have done what I did to go in to get the job as model citizens director, but I would have done more than to get the 
uh, people who had jobs within the Model Cities program and instead work outside to keep that organization going. But that's something you learn after you've done it. I hear you talk about the importance also of folks who do show up, who come out to mobilize, and that there's a place for folks who just have time to show up, that they're needed, and they were important to the work that you did. You just needed to know who they were. We see thousands of folks who are are able to show up for one day right now. We see them. And you talked about the social media piece of it. And while we're recording this, it was bumped because Facebook was down uh, and Instagram were down a couple of days ago. And we saw the impact of that on folks' ability to communicate and organize. But when we look at folks who are mobilizing and let's say I've been mobilizing, I've been showing up to rallies, I've been walking out, I have stood up in moments of hard conversations and I've stepped into that and now I'm ready to graduate. I'm here. I'm listening to everything's political because I'm ready to graduate and I want to become an organizer. It's cuffing season. I'm ready to make a long-term commitment to an organization and to the movement. What do I do next? Do I just show up more or is there something I need to learn? The first thing you can do is to decide, do you really want to be an organizer? Do you want to be a part of an organization? That's one of the first things we're going to talk about in this series. What does it mean to be organized in 2021 as opposed to the late late 1960s when I was... uh... It means exactly that folks. Well, let me do that again because there was there was some... Uh, uh, uh. Well, you don't get to do that again because that's what it means to be an organizer in 2021. It means to be having a conversation and getting in deep with something and realizing that you are organizing at home, that you don't get the perfect place to organize anymore. You don't necessarily get to put all the distractions aside. We're in this. We're organizing in a pandemic right now. And that comes with a different set of circumstances and environment. But I think we're up for the challenge. But go ahead. What does it mean to be an organizer? And that's where I can learn. Because uh, I guess organization meant one specific kind of structure or the lack of a structure from when I was coming along in my street organizing days. And uh, young people today have a different idea about what it means to be in organization. And that's why we want to talk about what is in the first chapter, in the first episode, we want to talk about what does it mean to be organized? You and I have talked about this a lot, but we want to share some other voices with it. If you think you are organized, I think there are some objective conditions One of them is, uh, are you working alone or are you working with somebody? If you're working alone, when I was teaching at Rutgers, Abbott Leadership Institute, one of my favorite classes was to talk about the Lone Ranger theory of political involvement. Mm -hmm. 
And you saw that a lot down at the Board of Education when you had some of the most fabulous speakers and they were the most articulate. They knew all the problems of what was going on in the schools. They had wonderful imaginative solutions, but they were all by themselves. Mm. They were all by themselves and they refused to submit to the discipline of organization. What is the discipline of organization? You got to learn how to get along with people. You got to give a little, you got to take a little, you got to know when to speak up, know when not to speak up. One of the things I learned in uh, organizing in Newark with the SDS group, Students for Democratic Society, organizers tended to say, well, we got to let the people decide. Well, after I did that for a while, I realized that if the people could decide all by themselves, they wouldn't need us. Hmm. What are we doing? If the people could decide, it's when you understand that the organizer has to submit some possible solutions and you have to learn when to submit those solutions to a group of people. Now, if they don't like them, they're not going to carry it forward. If it's too much risk or they just think you're crazy or there's no trust, then you go on and do something else. But the organizer has to be able to come forward with some possible solutions. So if you're able to do just those two things, that's the first step. Get some people, come up with some ideas. You know, Try your ideas out on a audience that's larger than yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. Then you're well on your way to start. I like what you just said there about having to try out your ideas. And I think a lot of us go from mobilizing to kitchen table organizing (laughs) where you sit around the table with a couple of friends or family members inspired by participating in a rally or march and starting to think about what the future looks like, but nothing gets tested out after that. It's a lot of philosophizing and idea making and probably some really good ideas getting tossed around, but a lot of times nothing comes from it. I think what I'm excited for people to hear is how do you take that, that conversation and turn it into something? How do you find the people that you can organize with, that you can be in this, in some ways, a monogamous relationship with to be able to make a change and still have to realize that a good chunk of the time, it's about making that change and making an impact. But it's also about how do you get along? How do you continue to operate together to move progress forward? And when it gets messy, and when it gets dirty, and when it's not easy, and when the folks who are at the table are having to balance between as you said, being a parent and also being a leader within an organization. I think we have to understand the importance of a story, not a story, but the story, the power of story. That's going to be our second episode. We're going to talk about how stories impact people's ability to think through issues and come up with solutions based on what that story specifically talks about or implies. Sometimes you got to read between the lines. Now, why is that so important? 
the reason we are so disorganized in this country is because of the stories we have accepted, the stories that have been given us, the stories that we have taken, stories that we have virtually breathed in and assimilated. And we respond to those stories, some by reflex. And that's especially true in the Black community, but I'm talking about everybody on this one. That's why Donald Trump was as successful as he was and why Trumpism, even without Donald Trump, still survives because they have a story and people believe it. Some of us are so mesmerized by that story that we are just powerless to do anything about it. And therein lies the story as well because some of us don't believe we have the power, the internal fortitude to take that first step, even to get to that kitchen table with your buddies after you've been to the rally. So you, we're now at a point where we know we need a movement. We know we got to do something about uh, police killing. And we see what happened to George Floyd. And we sit around and we've, we've been to one demonstration and we say, well, okay, let's go to another demonstration. And this time there's fewer people because people, some of us have said, well, hey, maybe we don't need to do that as much as we did. Somebody had already given you a counter story, let the politicians take care of it. We can't do without the police. We got to do with the police. Okay, well, I happen to believe, by the way, that we do need police. But some folks have said, well, we got to, we're always going to have the police and we're always going to have this problem. So the countervailing story has already taken hold with or without your belief of the police. We still got to do something. So what is it we're going to do? And therein, the whole cold concept of a story takes hold. What is the story you want to tell your folks that you are in organization with? What, to make them believe in themselves. That's what we're talking about. I'm excited for this one because I think that if I've learned anything from you, it's been the importance of story. And in the context of history, but also in the context of bringing people together mm -hmm. and how we can't lose the thread of that story either. And the moment we lose that story is when our movements fail or they flail and they still can be loud and they can still look powerful, but they fail. We don't end up having the change that we're expecting for as loud as the movement is because we've lost the story. We've lost the soul. That's one of the reasons why I like Mayor Raz Baraka in Newark is because he understands that. And he has asked me to help him set up a Newark community museum that's going to preserve those stories. The stories of, for example, the medical school fight, the fight to stop the highway, the fight to elect Ken Gibson. The, we're going to add to that. I have a new video that I'm working together with uh, others to talk about the Black and Puerto Rican women who were involved in the 1960s and 70s. Those are very important stories that people need to know because they empower people. And number two, they make it possible for us to not reinvent the wheel. That's the other thing I see. People reinventing the wheel. They think, and I don't want to sound too hard on everybody. <laughs> you have to help me out on this. Sometimes people want to do a demonstration just because that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, sometimes you don't want to do a demonstration. Sometimes you don't need to do a demonstration. 
I don't know if we're going to be able to talk about that much. Uh, this is one of the things, we, one of the stories we talk about, so I'm going to tell it now. I took 40 people in a bus down to the State Highway Department. We had white ministers and we had Black Panthers in the mix, along with my organization, NAPA, and some folks from the Welfare Rights Organization. And I had called to talk about this highway, Route 75, that was going to run across Newark connecting 78, Route 78, with Route 280. And we said we wanted to talk. Well, they didn't expect 40 people, especially the Black Panthers and the white ministers. We came in, locked the door, and we took over. And when we left two weeks later, the man called and said, Mr. Williams, we decided we don't need Route 75 after all. Now, was that a demonstration? No, that was a meeting. <laughs> we had a meeting of the minds with 40 people. We didn't have thousands of people, but we had, it was so strategically, it was well-placed. It was at a time when folks were scared. So we got that highway written off the planning board. Mm-hmm. And that was very important, which brings me to my next statement, which is, the importance of strategy. You can't just do things just because somebody else did it as a part of another version of a story, yes, but you got to choose the right story. Sometimes you have to use the part of the story that is important to use, but at other times you have to make up your own story, which is what we did. We did a lot of that. And sometimes the strategy isn't the sexy strategy. Sometimes it's not the strategy that's the most fun And I think we're battling this a little bit in this generation, too, is with social media, the strategy that gets the most attention is not always the strategy that's the most effective. But you still need those folks who are getting attention and so that there's definitely a place for that. But you also need folks who are building in some of that strategy you don't see in front of the cameras or you don't see on TikTok or can't become a meme very quickly. I'm hoping that there's a lot of names from this generation that I don't learn for 40 years. And I want to learn too. And that's one of the things we're going to highlight here. That's one of the reasons why I want to have you on this program that we have, this continuing program that we have, is because uh, even though I have been in the movement for X number of years, there are some strategies that I need to know about that work. (laughs) Some new strategies that y'all are coming up with. And I want to learn them because that's part of what I do. I teach, but I also learn. If you're a good teacher, you got to be a good learner. So I want to learn that. But another point you made was also equally important. Sometimes the strategies are not that sexy. So one of them is the vote. That's never been a very sexy strategy. I remember SNCC. That's my favorite organization, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I had the opportunity to work with SNCC in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and also here in Newark. I learned a lot from SNCC. Probably in my mind, SNCC was the most important organization that the 1960s presented. Mm. People are going to say, well, what about Martin Luther King? Well, SNCC people were the organizers. Martin Luther King's SELC, they were the mobilizers. The mobilizing force was Martin Luther King. So Martin Luther King would have been the one who 
even today had the most followers on Instagram and was putting out tweets and getting the word out and riling folks up and connecting the message to the mass media. Absolutely. While the SNCC people would be the ones who were inside the community talking to folks, making those connections, getting people to trust one another, using that scale, that measurement I told you about, 80%, 20%, they were the ones who were there when the Klan came around. Now, the Klan wasn't going to come when Martin Luther King was in town. But what happens when Martin Luther King left the town? SNCC was left there. And what was the big strategy they were using? Register to vote. Now, if I can get the younger generation to understand the power of the vote, I think we will have been well received. So that is definitely one of the chapters we're going to talk about. A lot of young people say, well, you know, we tried that and it hadn't worked. Look at these people we got in office. Well, I would be the first one to say that one of the things we have not learned to do, and this is just across the board, is to hold people accountable, to hold people accountable once we put them in office. But that's something we have to learn together, your generation and my generation. I will say along that line, beware of first, beware of first. We got a whole lot of first that we put in office and some of them are still there and they did more damage while they were there than they, than we anticipated. So we have to learn how to do that. But nonetheless, the fascists have used the vote to create one of the most undemocratic moments in our history because they have built in at the state level majorities, which are really minorities, but they just hold the power in certain offices like the state legislature, the boards of education, the voting boards or whatever it is in these little, little districts that where they set the rules so that now black people and, and Latino people and poor people can't vote. Now, what you going to do about that? If you're in that position, then they got the folks who are in power forever and ever and ever. And guess what they get to do? They get to pick the judges. They get to pick the administrators. They get to pick the people in charge. And we're left out permanently. And if that happens, the only result that we have is to some kind of violence, which is something I reject. I'd rather have a vote. It's easier. (laughs) I think it's easy also to now see or to have proof that the vote is so powerful because if the vote wasn't so powerful, they wouldn't be trying to take it away. Absolutely. Right now. Absolutely. So our, for our job at this moment, and in that particular episode, that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to show that voting is a viable strategy in the context of our conversation about movements and in our context about organization. Yeah. This is a place where I'm looking to you, Mr. Williams, as the educator and with the connects in education is to make sure that we have better civics programs. I had no idea until I started working in government how much power a city council person can have. I had no idea. I thought the power sat with a president or a senator. They've got some But in terms of what's going to impact my daily life or what's going to impact your daily life, those municipal elected officials and 
they win by a handful of votes sometimes. And maybe not in the city of Newark where the population is a little bit bigger, but in a lot of our smaller cities around the country and our smaller towns, it's a handful of votes that make the difference. One of the things that I've been happy to do, and you were part of this, we have a website which is uh, produced by the organization called Center for Education and Juvenile Justice, which I am a representative. That's that's who's really sponsoring this podcast. But they also sponsored a website called Rise Up Newark. And that's how I met Francesca Larson, because her organization put together this beautiful website, which over a million people have looked at. It's called riseupnewark.com. Then we went to Detroit and we did riseupdetroit.org. And it has led to a curriculum that is now being used in Newark schools. I think 10 high schools are using the curriculum to talk about things that you were talking about. Talk about power. Talk about who's got the power, who has the power, who has not got the power. You don't have civics, but now we have some of these courses, and those are the kind of things we're doing. This organization that we have here called Everything's Political Podcast. I can't call it an organization, can I? <laughs> Let's take that. You note. can't now that it's not just you. Right. Now that it's not just you, it can be an organization. <laughs> there you go. That's right, because you're learning your lessons well. We got more than people involved. This podcast is another example of uh, civics where we want to get people involved, want to teach them these kinds of things. Civics is one of those plain vanilla words, but you're so right. I at least learned that there was a separation of power, supposedly, in this country. And we all believe that. That's a story. (laughs) You've got the administrative part. You've got the executive branch. You've got the legislative branch. Executive branch is represented by the president or the mayor. Then you've got the legislative branch, which is the senators and your congressmen. And then you've got the judges in the judicial branch. Well, what the right has done in this time and age they merged them all together. They merged them all together. That's what Trump was able to do. And those are the kind of things we're going to be talking about and explaining what we mean when we talk about strategy and how to work the uh, organization to get something better. Now, there are other kinds of strategies that have been used. One of the things we did back in the 1960s as we became aware of who we are as Black people and I'm talking about African-Americans in that sense, but it also applies to uh, other nationalities and groups of people who need to have some kind of positive identity in face of, uh, of white decisions about who has value and who does not. One of the things we did was to organize around the concept of black power. We have a, an episode that's going to be called How Black Are You, Baby? Because uh, we want to talk about the pearls and pitfalls of organizing around culture and color. And I'm going to leave that right there where it is, but that's something that's important. We have another episode where we ask the question, do women make the best organizers? And I wanted to put that forward because uh, most of the organizations I have been a part of, the women were the backbone, but the men, like me, were at the head. And I'm sure you have something to say about that. 
Miss Larson, knowing you as I do? Oh, I have absolutely nothing to say. I love the fact that you're willing to have this conversation about that there has been, and going back to the importance of story, is we don't know the story of women in movements. And we haven't been educated about how essential we've been which we should, we should just know this because of how essential we are with just the fabric of our society, that our families would not exist, especially in our Black community, that Black women have been the, the connection point for our families and for our progress, but that hasn't been reflected in what gets captured by the media in our movements. And we can see that by the number of movies that have been made about the civil rights movement that don't have a lead female character. Another episode we anticipate is to talk about healing. Healing in any significant movement. And this is something where I want to learn how mass media can perhaps be of help. We have to help people. Any organization that I've been a part of we have to have some kind of social service aspect, to put it in plain vanilla language. Mm. My organization, NAPA, again, using that as an example, we weren't getting much headway trying to organize people around housing because uh, we told them, well, the bulldozers coming for the medical school, and people said, hmm, okay, well, we just move. And we realized that people had just been accustomed to moving two and three times a year. Again, the power of that story, you don't have any right to stay place in one place or another. You don't have any right to have a decent house. This is all you can expect is to be able to move one place to the other. And so we began teaching the children on the corner of South Orange and Bruce Street. We had a place, that's where the little office was. And when the kids got out of school, they would come running down to our office where they would learn about their African heritage through art. Mm. So we're combining all kinds of things here. And folks began to come in, the grown-ups began to come in just to see what we were doing. And in that neighborhood where reputation was important, folks began to say, oh, you're the one that's dealing with the kids. Parenthetically, that means you must be okay. When I hear you, you talk through your memories one thing that I'm I am consistently reminded of is that we're organizing for power, we're organizing for policy, but really we're organizing for people. Absolutely. And we can't forget that part of it. And it's easy to get lost in the power. It's easy to get lost in a policy win because it feels it feels good on paper. But if we're not remembering that people are at the center of our work and not checking in with them and not making sure that our change includes them and listens to them and empowers them, then what have we achieved? Even if on paper it says we have the power. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you don't like people and this, that's not what you should be doing. You should go pursue your own selfish adventures. Along with that concern is to to understand that the personal aspects of organizing goes beyond just the formal healing process, but also the vitalization 
and revitalization process. And that's why the arts comes in. That's why music is so important. I couldn't live without music in my life. And music has always been a part of any kind of movement for change that I'm aware of in this country. But then there's another, if we're talking about people, which is the ultimate objective, make people's lives better. We want to talk about how we're going to save the world because there is a crisis upon us that some kind of way just kind of gets lost in the shuffle sometimes when we're talking about whether we're going to have a $3 billion plan or whether we're going to have a $1 billion plan. Nature is not waiting for us to decide. There are rules, there are laws, there are immutable laws. And I don't even want to use those words, but it was what I'm thinking, so I might as well say it. The world may be coming to an end as we know it. And that has been something that some young people are aware of, and we need to make sure that others are aware. So that's something I want to learn. I want to learn how young people are organizing to save themselves and other people similarly situated as we go into the future. I'm so glad that we're ending on that that episode too, because one of the tension points in organizing is always organizing for now and organizing for immediate change versus organizing for our future. And for something that we may in our lifetimes may never even be able to see, see the success of, but knowing that we've got to plant the roots for it and we've got, we're talking about saving the world. We're talking about our environment we're talking about protecting a planet for our kids. And maybe that's from a climate conversation, or maybe it's just from making sure that there's safe communities, but still we've got to plant the roots for that now. And the organizers who are doing the work and hopefully it's us too, that we're, we're getting that started and it's not getting lost. And I do think that that's the difference between mobilizing and organizing And it's why I'm glad that you're talking about organizing this season and not just showing up because showing up is for this immediate moment. Organizing is for our future. And that everybody gets an opportunity to share in what nature has available for us. There is an abundance. And if we learn to share, if we have a sharing economy, if we have a sharing idea, if we have a sharing ideal that's common among us, then maybe that can happen a lot uh, faster than we want it to. I sure hope so, because I want to be around to see some of that happen, Francesca. I don't know if I will or not, (laughs) but I am going to be here to enjoy this podcast series too with you. So with that in mind, I think we can say, y'all come, because we're going to have fun. This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.